Men and women exist. Occasionally, we even like each other. We exist because of these two simple truths. These are the opening lines of a powerful new book that dives into the crisis in contemporary heterosexuality. It's been called a feminist defense of masculinity, and it is a clear-headed and compassionate look at where we've gone wrong. It's obvious that many Western societies, I think, are failing men in particular by pushing them towards extreme forms of isolation, which is what we see, and even antipathy, and then violence in the form of so-called incels. And I think it's about how to prevent people from ever being in that situation by creating a social fabric that gives life meaning. Nina Power is a British writer, philosopher, and fellow substacker. She's also a senior editor at the new American Journal of Radical Politics, Compact Magazine. Nina Power's latest book is What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents. She joins me today for a conversation about how we think and talk about men and how we might begin to heal the rift between the sexes. Nina Power is my guest. That's today on Lean Out. Nina, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. So nice to have you with us today. This book is so interesting, so I'm really excited to ask you some questions about it. I want to start with the opening lines of the book. Men and women exist. Occasionally, we even like each other. We exist because of these two simple truths. So to even tackle this topic of relationships between you know, heterosexual men and women, you have to commit leftist heresy. You have to acknowledge biology. Why is it so important to do so? Well, I think fundamentally it doesn't make sense to write a book about men and women unless there is some grounding in reality. And, and I take my cue not only from empirical reality, but also from the history of humanity and the way in which we've discussed these things for, at this point, thousands of years. So <laughs> if that makes me reactionary, then so be it. But I mean, in, in all seriousness, it would have been impossible to write a book about what I call heterosociality. So that obviously includes heterosexuality, but also different kinds of relationships between men and women in a broader sense. It would have been impossible to pay kind of lip service to a certain kind of discourse which would have tried to disavow the reality of sexual difference. Apart from anything else, it would have made the book read horribly. But I think more, again, more seriously, I, well, I fundamentally think that men and women do exist. And I do think that sexual difference is real and important. It doesn't mean we can't talk about how we live together in terms of how people express themselves and so on. But, you know, I am I'm committed to sexual difference. I think the difference is in fact very important and very beautiful and quite meaningful in a variety of different situations. And it would be a kind of terrible error in multiple ways to imagine that we can dispense with it. Mm -hmm. And there's a few threads that I, I want to pull kind of going from there. There's another quote, it is no longer our relationship to the means of production that matters, whether we are exploited for our labor, but rather how we identify and whether our identity is a good one and therefore uncriticizable or a bad one, therefore open to being blamed. Men as a class today most definitely fall in the latter category. How so? 
Okay, well, I mean, obviously, this, the first part of that is slightly sarcastic. Obviously, I think that <laughs> material reality involves exploitation. You know, this is how capitalism proceeds. And I think, you know, I've been looking at people like some of the early sort of socialist feminist writers, like Colin Tai. And it's very obvious that even where there are differences and difficulties between men and women, that the fundamental form of solidarity is between men and women as working men and women. Mm-hmm. And we could say that kind of contemporary consumer capitalism promotes a sort of this image of identity as if that kind of trumps everything else. You know, it's a very kind of categorical, taxonomical sort of existence. I mean, highly consumerist. And I think, you know, there is this idea that I talk about in the book of the zero-sum game. So Mm -hmm. the idea that if some group advances somehow socially or politically or economically, then another group must somehow be losing out. And I think this kind of logic of scarcity is very pernicious and very dangerous. And I think it's kind of a question of people rising together and falling together. So it's kind of old school leftist in that sense. But I think, you know, if in the logic of this kind of lack, it's very obvious that some kind of quote unquote oppressed groups are being kind of privileged over others and that, you know, men are have been for a quite a few years now sort of demonized as a class as a group as if they're kind of responsible for all the world's ills and i think both socially and politically this is obviously quite detrimental for any kind of realistic analysis mm-hmm. you also write that to be a man right now is to suffer and you go through a bunch of the material conditions that are being experienced by men can you recount a few of those there just to set this up Sure. I mean, I think one of the things I wanted to be clear to write about was the male suicide rate, which is generally quite high. It's very high in the Western world. I I myself have had three male friends who've committed suicide. And I think it's one of those things that is says something terrible about our culture in general. We don't want to live in a world, if we think about it for more than half a second, (laughs) in which any group of people are feeling you know, so meaningless and so bad about their place in the universe that they contemplate, let alone commit suicide. So I think I take it as a kind of very salutary lesson and to ask questions about why men tend to feel, some men tend to feel this kind of lack of a social role. And what does it mean to have this kind of, you know, cosmic meaninglessness? So the male suicide rate, I also think it's important to note that it's men who die in, in war overwhelmingly. It's men who die in dangerous jobs and so on. And when we're talking about equality, often a very kind of superficial lip service is paid to the idea of people competing for like, let's say, the top jobs mm. without kind of taking into consideration the kind of whole plethora of work and employment and behavior that is, you know, the reality, mm-hmm. in fact. And also men tend to dominate homelessness, drug use, drug abuse. I mentioned the kind of opioid crisis in America and other situations where, again, it's kind of overwhelmingly men that suffer. And it, of course, it's not to say that women suffer too. Of course they do. But I think it's just to to focus for a second on those issues because you have men's rights activists who are talking about these things and they're often being kind of just simply dismissed as if oh, ha ha, don't be stupid. You know, men have it easy. But any kind of like class analysis and sort of realistic picture of the world would show you that that's that's not true. I mean, just by virtue of being a man doesn't mean that you are in possession of any form of power necessarily. Mm -hmm. Well, and the the ways of talking about power have become so simplistic. Yeah, exactly. Which I want to get to in a moment, as well as with the manosphere, which you investigate. 
But first, I mean, this idea of suffering and, and what we do about it, there's another line that really stands out to me from the book, this idea that, you know, punishing men for women's suffering will somehow remedy male violence. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, we live in an age that kind of celebrates victimhood in lots of ways, often in ways that I think detrimental to people who've suffered from trauma, who have experienced pain and suffering, you know, many of whom don't want to be victims. <laughs> you know, the position of the victim, as I, I mentioned, Judith Schlar, the philosopher, you know, isn't inherently a good one. In fact, victims often are subject to feelings of kind of revenge and vengeance that are not necessarily kind of helpful to the social whole. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek justice for harms done and so on and to recognise when harm is done. But it can't be, let's say, the grounding character of our culture. So I suppose it's, again, to get away from this idea of the zero-sum game, you know, is to say that everybody suffers, you know, that life, in a sense, is suffering, you know, I think we, again, this kind of culture uh, seems to say that when men suffer, they don't really suffer, that, you know, that it, they're not really upset or that it doesn't really matter. But I think it's a kind of, a, you know, fact of life. And I think even not that long ago, people used to accept that suffering was a fact of life much more readily than they do now. But I think there's a, another part of your question that I've slightly forgotten, if you could go over Mm-hmm. And the punishing will somehow mm. solve the question of male violence, which is a real question we need to grapple with, right? Right. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, yeah, so basically, you know, everybody wants to solve this problem. You know, men are disproportionately responsible for interpersonal violence, usually against each other or themselves and against women to a lesser degree. It's a very small number of men who commit these violent acts. Um, it, there's Some people are working on the idea of identifying that small proportion of men who commit, you know, the vast majority of violence. It's one way of thinking about it. I propose rather than to blame all men as a class, rather to get men to think of themselves as a class and to take responsibility for individual men when they are acting out. So almost a kind of a recognition of a shared existence as men, rather than to think of themselves first and foremost as individuals, but rather to think of themselves as part of a class that men might start to look bad if certain of them are acting out, if you sort of mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes away responsibility also from the state, I think, and more towards a kind of social existence, you know, like that we, we actually do live in a relational communal way, despite atomization, despite, you know, this faceless technocratic bureaucracies, and that we can pay attention when people around us are not in a good place or, you know, need help and need support. So, yeah, and I think that kind of preemptively blaming men for all violence is runs the risk of a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you if you mm. say that, well, men can't be good, then they might start to think, well, why should I bother trying at all? Whereas I think I have a quite sort of, you know, almost Christian humanist message, which is that basically everybody can be slightly better. <laughs> you know, and we have to kind of admit that we are, you know, flawed and we're all capable of harm. We all do hurt each other accidentally a lot of the time we all make mistakes and I think to have a little bit more kind of forgiveness and flexibility which are kind of in short supply I think in our Mm -hmm. culture you know to kind of for everyone's sake actually you know whether people are have been hurt or whether they are doing the the hurting or both as we both do so yeah it's an attempt to be sort of balanced and reasonable which is itself faintly controversial for for reasons (laughs) that escape me (laughs) I found it such a breath of fresh air to read that kind of humanism and to see that 
basic fundamental belief that we can improve, that we can be good to each other, that we can move past this moment. Yeah. Very optimistic, actually, given the, the subject matter and the time we're in. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, it's it's also based very much on my real life experiences, you know, like I have, you know, I love my father, I love my brother, I have male friends, I have a, you know, male partner I love, you know, I just thought that the way in which men were being discussed is just not true for the vast majority of people, you know, and even women who've had an experience with like one bad man or a bad relationship or something, will still have men that they love in their lives, you know, as friends or, you know, and it's not, it's not just about romantic partners with, you know, I'm talking about all kinds of relationships, you know, at work, in private life and family. Yeah. So I wanted to be kind of honest and respectful to those relationships as well, you know, not go down the sort of polemical route, you know, all men are rubbish or whatever, you know, which would have been a more popular book probably in some ways, um, <laughs> or at least, you know, would have attracted more attention. But I didn't want to do that because it's not, it's not true. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. And you speak to a lot of men for this book. And also you read a lot of men. I was thinking particularly about the Phil Chrisman essay, What Is It Like to Be a Man? He has this great phrase, the abstract rage to protect. And you note, you know, a lot of women, if we're being honest, will admit to this desire to be protected in that way. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is, you know, touches on some deep stuff because it's not just saying that men and women are different, but saying how they are different, I suppose, which, you know, runs the risk of the greatest crime of all, all which is essentialism. You can't make claims about anything. You can't say what anything actually is because then you're somehow reducing it to that thing. And this is terrible. You're, you know, preventing freedom and whatnot. But we, we don't really understand what freedom is today anyway. But on this point, I suppose it's to say something like, and that's a great essay by Phil Christmas, by the way, I think it's a very thoughtful and reflective essay. So yes, as you say, he describes this, the male or masculinity as this abstract rage to protect, which is a very, very beautiful phrase. Mm-hmm. The idea that somehow what men ought to do to their partners and friends and family is, is to protect, to protect them. And I, I've been thinking since I wrote the book about different types of care you know I think every human being cares every human being cares about the world each other themselves you know and perhaps he's just manifest in slightly different ways you know the abstract rage to protect in men might look like something more like a kind of a protective urge to protect the innocent in women you know not so much a rage to protect but maybe a kind of concern or a wariness You know, I think we sometimes talk about like female intuition, which I actually think is very important and is often being overridden in certain cultural and social situations. But it's actually a deep rooted and key instinct, which is to do with protecting, I think, primarily children, whether you have your own children or not. I think women are somehow attuned to look after those who cannot look after themselves. And of course, it's very complicated because women are generally less strong than men. You know, most women could not physically overpower most men and mm-hmm. I, you know we have to kind of acknowledge that and I think you know it's a very complicated question what for example like the heterosexual compact actually is you know if you're with a man in a way I think I wanted to draw out some of these complexities like there's some very interesting radical feminist work on heterosexuality which goes so far as to describe it as a form of Stockholm syndrome yes <laughs> you know which is Good which is God. which is you know I I'm very interested in kind of extreme arguments right so I'm open to contemplating these sorts of things so you know from one extreme you have this idea that 
women identify with their captors and that they're in a state of kind of trance, you know, that because because men can actually overpower them and, and you know, and always stronger than them. And, and on some level that women are, at least according to this analysis, you know, afraid of afraid of men. And I, I don't think that's true, but I do think there's a more complex relation, which is something to do with an implicit desire to be protected, that if you're in a heterosexual relationship, one of the the tacit understandings is that because of differential strength, if it came to it, you would hope that your man would protect you (laughs) against other men, you know, like, of course, most of the time, this is completely irrelevant. And it doesn't, you know, it's not a key question in in most of walks of of life, you know, we live in a very highly mediated and, and sort of distantiated world, which doesn't require, you know, almost chimpanzee levels of demonstrations of of male dominance. But I think, you know, these kind of complexities, these intricacies of relationships of care, mutual care, the different kinds of care that men and women exhibit towards each other and towards children and to society at large. Again, I think there's sort of this beauty and frisson of these different kinds of care, you know, maybe the abstract rage, as Christman describes, or a kind of more, you know, intuitive, protective feeling among women. But, you know, these are these are generalizations, of course, and I don't mind making generalizations. <laughs> I'm all right with it as well. <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about sort of the responsibility, you know, you, you talk about the concept of a good man and how we define those roles now, like as we've pulled apart the gender roles, there seems to be this absence of what it means to be a man. And in fact, when you talk to men and ask them, you know, what does a man want? You're getting answers like beer and (laughs) sex and (laughs) a shed. Let's try to unpack, given your sort of foray into the manosphere, like what do you, biggest question in the universe, what do you think men are missing right now? What is it that they want that they don't have? I think probably something like respect, you know, that actually, this kind of question of the desire to be good, which I think we all have, you know, we're all capable of it. I mean, the problem is I think we live in a deeply kind of non-virtuous age or a post-virtue age, right, in which any discussion of things being better or worse is generally regarded with a kind of horror and suspicion, you know. So even, mm. but but it's manifestly obvious that there are better and worse ways of living, even in one's own life, right? Like it's, it's better for me that I don't start drinking at 7am and spend all of my life drunk, right? It's better for me. It's better for everyone around me. It's better for everyone I work for. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I could do that, right? I could, you know, spend whatever money or borrow money and, you know, spend it on alcohol and whatever, as could anyone, right? It's possible, but it's, you know, I don't know how to put it. Like we all make moral decisions about the things that we do, even if we pretend that we're not particularly moral beings or that we don't live in a moral age, you know, and part of this book is is sort of dealing with a kind of post-virtue or post-Christian culture, but nevertheless saying, well, look, we've got a whole tradition also pre-Christian, going back to kind of classical ideas of masculinity and goodness, and in women too, you know, this is not just a book about what it is to be a good man, it's also about the fact that women can be good too, you know, that we're also moral, rational agents, and it's a mistake, I think, for feminists and women to think that we are not that, you know, because otherwise then we're back in categories of being children or, you know, a group of people who need to be protected. So goodness is something that is a possibility for all of us. And it may be that we're never going to 
complete our goodness like we're not going to be perfect but we can all try to be better and we can all try to be better towards each other and to ourselves and so on so I think there's a broader question of this of virtue and what goodness is in general and even to bring back that question to the question of sex I think is worth posing I think that you know one of the issues like for example with male depression and suicide is this lack of social roles you know, not feeling needed, not feeling like there is a place in a particular society for men, whether that be in terms of the kind of work that they can do or in relation to women or relation to the broader culture. It's obvious that many Western societies, I think, are failing men in particular in this regard by pushing them towards extreme forms of isolation, which is what we see, and even antipathy and then violence in the form of, you know, so-called incels, um, you know, extremely isolated, alienated young men who take out their rage, you know, not in care, but on the world, you know. And I think it's about how to prevent people from ever being in that situation by creating a social fabric that gives life meaning and you give people meaning through their social role and through their participation in a culture. So, I mean, these are huge, huge questions that can't be solved really at the level of of talking about individual men. But I think there's a lot of people who are interested in what a post-liberal culture of virtue might look like, if you see what I mean. Can we get back to conversations about our relationality, what we owe to each other, how we ought to behave, you know, that are not just eroded and destroyed by this kind of nihilistic culture. Yeah. And you have a lovely way of putting it in the book as, you know, getting back to the old things in new ways. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder too, I mean, just going back to the manosphere briefly, we hear a lot about incels, incel culture. What I don't hear as much about is this no fat movement that you wrote about (laughs) (laughs) these men, you know, trying to displace the sexualization of daily life, you know, in the form of porn and masturbation, trying to move that aside so that they can focus on other things. But also the other one that really stood out to me was the men going their own way. Mm -hmm. Could you, for the listeners, say what that is and why you found that so interesting? Yes. I mean, I I wanted to mention NoFap because I think it's, again, part of this broader discussion about liberalism and about about the sexual revolution. And I think there's quite a lot of people like Louise Perry, for example, who are writing about, you know, where we're at 60 years after the sexual revolution. And are there, in fact, huge problems <laughs> with this idea of desire as being purely good and, you know, that we must fulfill ourselves through our sexual behavior? I think a lot of people are realizing or, or you know, questioning that idea. And I think the NoFap movement, so yes, where, where men tend to try to stop using pornography, particularly if they become kind of addicted to it or, you know, they sort of don't masturbate for 30 days and the idea of a kind of reset, you know, is because pornography is a very effective form of control. You know, it creates not only images, but also kind of feelings of shame. You know, you read these forums and men are talking about how they can't go out into the world without seeing everything in a pornographic way. You know, this is terrible. You know, this is horrific. This is absolutely antisocial. And so I thought it was worth, I don't know, recognizing the attempt on the part of these men to take back control as it were of their own sexuality and not let it be kind of diffuse into the world you know in a way that was causing them harm and also you know pornography 
is itself a very harmful industry, you know, so it's not just the men as consumers, but it's also like the participants in the films and also the destruction of imagination that pornography, you know, it erodes people's much more gentle everyday forms of fantasizing and imagining and dreams and all of these things that we're all capable of, of doing. And I think, you know, often leads people down into very dark paths, you know, where they, they need like harder and harder stuff you know, mm. which is often, you know, gets people into very, very extreme places, which again, as a society, we would not want to encourage, I think, you know, that it does lead to extremely harmful behaviour and the exploitation of people. And so, on the other hand, you know, men going their own way is a kind of form of male separatism. Like, it's a very small sort of movement in a way, but I wanted to include it as a symptom of a response to, again, the kind of culture which some men feel is not sort of suited to them. And, and of course, there have always been men who've lived solitary lives, whether as in a religious sense, as, as monks or as, I don't know, the MGTOW are very big fans of Jesus and the Wright brothers and men who, uh, Tesla, I think, and, and, and men who didn't get married and didn't have children. And I wanted to compare it to the kind of 70s feminist separatist movement, which is also quite a small feature of the second wave, but an interesting one. To see whether what the limits of that is, you know, we live in a mixed world. We see each other all the time, unless you're kind of, again, completely hidden away in a single sex place like Mount Athos, maybe, you know, they don't even have female animals apart from the insects because you can't differentiate. But, you know, most people in most places live in a mixed sex world. And I don't think there's there's much getting away from that. But I was just kind of curious about the, I suppose, antipathy and weary wariness, I suppose, that, that some men felt towards a world that they thought was unfairly tilted towards women, particularly in the kind of dating arena. Mm. And I don't think necessarily it's completely fair, but it is true that sex selection, I think, does privilege women overwhelmingly. There's, there's a, there is a large amount of men who sort of don't really get picked up by most women. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a kind of question, again, for a kind of, of culture if we prioritize sex and relationships and all of these things to such a degree we also have to accept the fact that desire is fundamentally unfair and that you are going to have people primarily men who are not loved by anyone and this is a kind of very difficult question for a society to deal with and and different cultures and different societies have had different solutions at different times mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the apps i'm sure don't help right. with all of that just to close, Nina, I've been thinking a lot about you use the word grace over and over again in the book and ending the book on a note of reconciliation. What would grace in reconciliation look like? Hmm, interesting question. I suppose one of the things I was, I am concerned to note and to describe is what happens when you have a kind of vengeful spiral you know and this comes from the work of Rene Girard and other thinkers but you know when two groups of people are in locked in a kind of battle and they're being encouraged to hate each other and they blame each other and each group feels harmed it's very easy for that to just spiral up you know because everybody thinks that the other group is responsible for the first harm you know who cast the first stone if you like and then you end up in a never-ending spiral of violence. And, you know, I think we're in a resentment spiral that's often being encouraged by media that seeks to pit men and women against each other. And this is neither good from a 
socialist point of view, you know, in terms of solidarity among men and women, it's not good from a social point of view. In general, in terms of how we get on, or a sexual point of view, or or a cosmic point of view, or a political point of view, or anything. And you have to ask yourself, who benefits from pitting people against each other in this way, given that it's not the reality of most people's experience? You know, there's a very divisive logic at work in much media, not just about men and women, but obviously that was my focus. So I think grace would be something along the lines of recognising where there, there has been harm, but not taking it as an opportunity to then launch into forms of vengeance and violence, whether it's psychological or physical or legal in some cases, that would in fact only make things worse, I suppose. And I do sort of suggest that Sometimes women need to be the bigger man <laughs> in a sort of a kind of pun, <laughs> you know, and, and what does it mean, you know, not to play down harm and suffering, but to recognise it and to recognise that it's kind of everywhere. And it doesn't necessarily just belong to individuals or to groups, but that it is a feature of the universe in which we all partake. And so grace would be something like a kind of dignity in that recognition with a a larger commitment, not towards vengeance and violence, but towards a kind of harmony that might need to have a lighthearted character. So I try to talk about game playing and and the different ways in which we can relate that are not only antagonistic, which I think is being promoted by the media often. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's a really important book. I want to thank you for coming on to talk about it and for your humanism and your optimism. Well, thank you for inviting me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>